John 19, 30 through 37. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and again, another scripture says, they look on him whom they have pierced. The word of the Lord. Have you ever had one of those defining moments in life? Um, some experience, some event, maybe even some trauma, but whatever it was, it was something that was so powerful, it had such an impact on you that you're a different person now than you were before it happened. I'm guessing that every single person in this room has had experiences like that. Uh, in fact, you're probably thinking about it right now, uh, maybe even reliving it, because it really was um, such a defining moment in your life, and it had such a powerful impact um, in your life to change you, whether for good or maybe even for ill. But as powerful as those moments were in your life, what if there was another experience, another defining moment that um, had the ability to change you and to change you for good and to do it so powerfully that all of the other defining moments in your life would look like a flea bite in comparison? Would you be interested in finding out what that experience is and possibly even experiencing it for yourself? It's in this passage that we just read. The gospel writer John was an eyewitness at the cross. He saw everything that happened, but there was one event in particular that was defining for him. It was so significant. It had such an impact on him that he says this in verse 35. He says, he who saw it, he's talking about himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Whatever happened to John had such an impact on him that it's like he's just going on and on about what a big deal this was. So that, you know, and remember, this is decades later he's writing this down. Of all the memories he had of Jesus, all the things he saw Jesus do, all the things he heard Jesus say, of all of that, when he writes his gospel, this is the thing he emphasizes. This is the thing he wants to focus on. It's as if he was saying, I saw this. 
And it had such a transformative impact on my life that I'm telling you about it because I want it to transform you too. This is like the mother of all defining moments. What is it? It's this incident that happens in verses 33 and 34. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The defining moment for John was this piercing of Jesus' side, was this flow of blood and water that came out. And John says, this is the thing. This is the thing I want you to know about. I'm telling you about this because I want you to believe in Jesus too. In other words, John is saying, if you really want to understand Jesus, if you really want to know what it means to have faith in Jesus, to be a Christian, if you really want to know what it means for Jesus to change your life, this is what you need to see. This is what you need to understand, the blood and the water. That's what he's getting at, the defining moment in his life. Now, why is this so important? In the weeks leading up to Easter, we've been looking at the events leading up to and including the resurrection, I mean the uh, crucifixion, we'll get to the resurrection next week, but we've been looking at the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus and asking the question, why did Jesus die and why does it matter? The blood and the water shows us something about the death of Jesus, something so significant that John would say, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand this. What does the blood and water show us about the death of Jesus? Three things I want to look at this morning. The blood and water shows us the physicalness of his death, the significance of his death, and what it means for us. All right? The physicalness of his death, the significance of his death, and what it means for us. Okay, so first, it shows us the physicalness of Jesus' death. When someone was crucified, um, the most common cause of death was asphyxiation. In other words, the weight of your body would prevent you from being able to get any air in your lungs when you were hanging on the cross. But that process could actually take days to happen because what you would do is people would push up on their legs and it would enable them to get air into their lungs and it would prolong the dying process. But Jewish tradition prohibited any person who was hanged either on a gibbet or a stake, it prohibited people from being exposed overnight, especially during the Sabbath. So the Roman soldiers would take these heavy mallets and they would shatter the legs of the people crucified so that they would no longer be able to push up and get air into their lungs and they would die um, very quickly after that. That's what's going on in this passage. Except when they get to Jesus, they don't break his legs because they realize that he's already dead. Now, here's the thing. Roman soldiers are trained killers. They... um, Um, are trained to make sure that people are dead. And if they botch an execution, then they get executed themselves. That means that Roman executioners were very highly motivated to be very, very good at making sure that people were dead before they took them down from the cross. So when these soldiers get to Jesus and see that he's already dead, just to make sure, they pierce his side with this spear, and out comes this flow of blood and water. Now, 
Thousands of years later, medical experts have written quite a bit about this, and they will tell us that this is actually very good post-mortem evidence that someone has died of cardiovascular collapse, or what we might more commonly call a ruptured heart. There's a membrane around the heart called the pericardial sac, and when someone dies like that, it fills up with fluid so that when you pierce their side um, and out comes the blood and water, that's a sure medical physical sign that somebody's dead. Now, why is this so important? Well, two reasons in particular, and the first one is this. This is physical evidence, medical physical evidence that this really did happen. I've been reading a book um, recently by an historian and New Testament scholar named Richard Bauckham. He's one of the most highly respected biblical scholars in the world. And about a little over 10 years ago, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, It's one of the most powerful cases laying out the evidence that the gospel accounts of Jesus' life were not legends written according to oral tradition. Oral tradition is kind of like the game of telephone. You know how you stand in a circle and you whisper something in someone's ear, and then by the time it gets all the way back around, it's completely different? Many people say, well, that's what the gospels are. Oral tradition, it's like the game of telephone. Richard Bauckham and many other scholars over the past 10 to 20 years have thoroughly discredited that view. Bauckham especially shows that ancient historians um, had to um, maintain very precise methodological rigor when they were writing history down. And one of the ways they would do that is that they would get eyewitness testimony. So he does a very good job of showing that the Gospels are not written according to oral tradition, which is like the game of telephone. The Gospels were written according to oral history, which is eyewitness testimony. And if you did get an eyewitness, then you put that person's name in your document because it was a way of citing your sources. So for instance, in the ancient world, Bauckham shows that all of the historians had to operate according to um, the highest standards of methodological rigor. So if you were writing a history, yes, it would be good if you could get maybe second or third hand accounts of whatever event you're describing. But if you got an eyewitness, you put that person's name in the document so that if anybody disputed your claim, you could just say, well, go talk to that person. It's a way of checking their sources. So for instance, you remember maybe a few weeks ago, we were looking at the account of Jesus when he got arrested in the garden, and it says that the servant whose ear was cut off, that the servant's name was Malchus. You know why that name was there? John is citing his sources. He's being a good historian, and he's operating according to the standards of methodological rigor that were expected of of all historians in those days. Now here's what this means for us. It means that if if you're going to be skeptical about the historical reliability of the New Testament, then the only way you can do that is by ignoring the evidence. If you're going to be skeptical about Jesus, then at least be skeptical about the right things. You may not believe that Jesus was God, but you can't ignore the evidence that he claimed to be God. Or you may not believe that his death on the cross atones for sin, but you can't ignore the evidence that he actually died on the cross or that his tomb was empty or that there are eyewitnesses who saw him risen from the dead. We'll get more into that next week. But the point is, the evidence is too strong. Historically speaking, physically speaking, that that we have very good reasons for believing the historical reliability 
of the New Testament, and the physicalness of Jesus' death shows us that. But secondly, it also shows us that God cares about this world. The physical nature of Jesus' death shows us that God cares about this world. Um, Every other religion in the world focuses on helping us to escape this world. Which makes sense, really, because this world is a painful place, and it's only natural for um, our impulse to want to escape the pain. So throughout history, most religions in the world have always said physical is bad, spiritual is good, and the ultimate goal of salvation is to help people escape the physical world and merge with the world of pure spirit. In contrast to that, the Bible offers us a completely different view. The Bible says that instead of encouraging us to escape this world, it says, no, no, no. What God is doing, he's doing in this world because this world matters. Because how did Jesus save us? The blood and the water. The physicalness of Jesus' death shows us that God cares about this physical world. It's a physical salvation because God cares about this physical world. Because how does God save us? He doesn't take us out of our bodies, out of this world. God himself takes a body and comes into this world. In other words, Jesus did not save us by means of prayer and meditation. Jesus saves us by means of physical elements, things like blood and water and wood and nails and sweat and thorns. The physicalness of his death is a sign that God cares about the physicalness of this world. Because if you think about it, you realize John, the gospel writer, he's having the most profound spiritual experience in the history of humanity. But where is it taking place? A public execution, a lynching, It's saying this world matters. Every other religion is focused on helping us to escape this world by carrying us away to heaven. Only the gospel said God is focused on renewing this world by uniting it with heaven. Friends, we care about making this world a better place. But why do we care so much about that? Why do we care so much about ridding this world of things like war and poverty and racism and disease and death? It's because that was God's vision when he created this world. And because we're created in God's image, that vision for creation is hardwired into us. Every other religion is focused on helping us to escape this world, which is only natural because, like I said, it's, it's an impulse for us to want to escape pain. But God is not ditching this world. He's renewing this world. And the physicalness of Jesus' death, the blood, the water, the sweat, the nails, the thorns, all of it is a call to join God in his vision of renewing this creation. Now, that's the first thing we see here, the physicalness of Jesus' death. But secondly, um, the blood and the water shows us the significance of Jesus' death. And let's just walk through this. The soldiers... They didn't break Jesus' legs because they found out he was already dead. And John sees that, and he says, oh, that was to fulfill the scripture that says not one of his bones will be broken. Now, what's he talking about? What scripture is that? He's referring back to the Passover in the book of Exodus. Passover was when God saved um, Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The way he did it was by sending an angel of destruction throughout the land. But God told Israel, I want you to kill a lamb, don't break any of its bones, but take its blood and put the blood on the doorposts 
of your house so that when the angel of destruction came through the land of Egypt, it saw the blood and it passed over the house of the houses of the Israelites. Now, here's what's so odd about that, if you think about it. In this story, Israel, they're the oppressed ones. They're, they're enslaved by the people of Egypt. So it'd be natural to think, oh, Israel, they're the good guys, and Egypt, they're the bad guys. But when God's judgment comes into the land, it says, everybody is equally liable to judgment before me. Israel, you too. And unless Israel, unless you have some shelter under the blood of the lamb, when my judgment comes down, it's coming down on you too. Israel needed to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. And what John is telling us here is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. That all of us are equally liable to judgment, that none of us gets to look around and say, well, those people over there, I'm not as bad as those people. That we all need to take shelter under the blood of Jesus if we want to be saved. That's what John is showing us here. And boy, that really comes out with what happens next. When the soldiers get to Jesus, they see he's dead, they don't break his legs. What they do is they pierce his side, and out comes the blood and water. John says that was to fulfill the scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, that's a reference to a prophet named Zechariah, chapter 12 of Zechariah. In Zechariah 12, God is talking to Israel, and he's saying that one day, he's going to pour out a spirit of grace and mercy. And in our culture, man, we love that, don't we? We say, that's the kind of God I want. I want a God of love and grace and mercy, not this God of wrath and judgment. The thing we miss, however, is that the only way God can be a God of love and grace and mercy is if he is also a God of judgment. Because in Zechariah 12, um, God goes on to say this. He begins by saying, yes, I'm going to pour out a spirit of grace and mercy. Wonderful. But, God says, they will look on me. God's talking about himself. He says, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn child. God is saying, I'm the one who's going to be pierced so that my people will not have to bear any judgment. I'm the one who's going to take the judgment upon myself so that my people can receive a spirit of grace and mercy. I'm the one who's going to bear the brunt, God says. I'm the one who's going to absorb the impact, the full impact of the spear, so that none of my people will have to absorb the impact of the justice that they rightly deserve. That's what God is saying. And at the end of this passage, it's one of the most famous parts of the Old Testament, God says, on that day... On that day, when I am pierced, I am going to open up a fountain of cleansing from sin. On the day that he is pierced, God is opening a fountain of cleansing from sin. When John looks at Jesus on the cross, sees him pierced in the side, and out comes the blood and the water, he says, there's the fountain. And there's the water that I need for spiritual healing. And the only way I can get that is through the blood of Jesus. That's what he's saying because that's what he sees. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so significant? Why is it that decades later, when John is thinking about all he saw Jesus do and say, everything that happened, why is it that this is the thing he emphasizes? Why is this the defining moment in his life? Well, 
Think back to all those defining moments in your life. Why were they defining moments in your life? It's because they created storylines in your heart that told you things about who you are. They, they created storylines in your heart that, that told you things about your worth and value as a human being. You know, there's probably a few defining moments in your life. But, but the things that have impacted you most deeply have been the things that created those storylines in your heart that defined you, that told you things about your worth and value as a human being. And for most of us, I'm guessing that a lot of those experiences defined us not for good. In other words, they created storylines in your hearts that say things like, I'm bad, I'm dirty, I'm shameful, I'm ugly, no one could love me like this. And listen, you know, I'm guessing a lot of you probably grew up in homes where maybe you received a lot of love. So those storylines, they may not be quite as loud in your hearts, but they're still there. Others of you grew up and you had experiences in your life that amplified those storylines. It seems like those negative storylines, it seems like that's all you hear. But here's what's true for all of us, okay? Two things in particular. First, every single one of us needs to find some way to get a sense of worth and value in our lives. Every single one of us needs some kind of validation, some kind of defining word that comes into our life and says, you are loved, you do matter, you do have worth and value. And we, we all need that. And every single one of us is looking for that in this world. Now, the Bible has a theological word for that. The word is called justification. Justification is a way of saying that your status as a being of worth and value is secure. You're justified. It's the validation you need, that defining word that comes into your life and says you are loved, you do matter. We all need that defining word, that justifying word in our lives. Whether you believe in God or not, every single human being needs that defining word in your life. But secondly, we all need that defining word, but secondly, none of us can bestow that word upon ourselves. It must always come from outside of us. We can't give it to ourselves. No matter how much we might say in our world, in our culture, well, look, it doesn't matter what other people think. The only thing that matters is what you think of yourself. We say that, but it's not true. It doesn't work. It does matter what other people think. And the way we know that is because we work our little tails off trying to get that defining word of validation in our lives, trying to perform and succeed and achieve and excel. Or maybe you check out of life. You give up on life and you don't do anything because you feel like you're such a horrible, awful, malodorous person and you will never be able to do anything that is enough, that you will never be able to measure up to the world's expectations of you. And so you check out of life, you numb yourself. We numb ourselves with things like food or TV or sex or Facebook or porn or pot or any number of things. But don't you see, in our world, we are defined by what we do. So that even if you feel horrible about yourself, it's still operating according to the same paradigm. Because the reason you feel horrible about yourself is because you feel like you will never be able to measure up to what the world expects of you. It's still operating according to the same paradigm. We're defined by what we do. But John is showing us a different way here. He's showing us a different way. When, when John looks at Jesus, when he looks at the opening in Jesus' side and the blood and the water, 
He's, he's showing us a different way. Because what does it say in verse 35? Why is John so focused on the piercing? Why is he so focused on this blood and the water? What does he say? So that you also may believe. So that you also may believe. He's begging the question, what is the essence of the gospel? What is the essence of of what it means to have faith in Jesus? What is the essence of what it means to be a Christian? John is saying it's the blood and the water. That's what it means to be a Christian. Listen, if every single human being needs a sense of worth and value, if every single one of us needs that defining word of validation to come into our lives, and if every single one of us is incapable of bestowing that word upon ourselves, if if we need to get that word from outside of ourselves, then we really only have two options for where you get that. In our world... Our world says, every religion in our world says, you're defined by what you do. The gospel says you are not defined by what you do. You're defined by what Jesus did. That's a new defining word. And it's completely unlike every other defining word the world will ever offer you to to you. Because Jesus had the ultimate validation. He had the ultimate status. He had the ultimate defining word of the Father's love and affirmation in his life. And yet on the cross, Jesus was pierced for you. He was pierced so that out of his side would open up a fountain of cleansing from sin. That is, from all of the ways that we want to control our lives, all the ways we want to be Lord and Savior over our lives, all of the ways that we want to define ourselves and not be defined by God. But on the cross, Jesus Christ opened up a fountain of cleansing, a new defining word, a new validation. Because Jesus Christ, all of the validation he had, all of the status he had, all of the the defining word of affirmation that he had, it belongs to him by right, but he bestows it upon us by grace. So that when you trust in him, now all of a sudden Jesus bestows that defining word on you and gives it to you so that all you have to do is trust in him and receive that validation by grace. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what the blood and water shows us about the physicalness of Jesus' death. We've seen what it shows us about the significance of his death. But lastly, what does this mean for us? And I mean, practically speaking, if we're not defined by what we do, but we're defined by what Jesus did, then, then how do we make that a, a more powerful, defining moment in our life? How does that become a more defining reality in our lives? John says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He says, look on him. That the more you look on Jesus, the more this becomes a defining reality in your life. How do we do that? Let me offer you just a couple of thoughts about how we do that. First, we look on Jesus for a new definition. We look on Jesus for a new definition. What are those defining words, those defining moments in your life? Think about all the storylines they've created in your heart. The blood of Jesus is a new defining word. It's a defining word that comes into your life and says you are loved. You do matter. You do have worth and value, not just in the eyes of other human beings, but in the eyes of the God who created the heavens and the earth, the stars in the sky, and all of the galaxies of the cosmos. That's a new defining word that comes into your life. Can you imagine how that would change you? If you had that defining word in your life that would override every single other word. But how does that become a defining reality in our lives? 
Because John, okay, great, he was there at the foot of the cross. He experienced it all. He saw it happen. But we don't get that opportunity. So how does it become a defining reality in our lives? What does it mean to look on him whom they have pierced? John, who was there, says this. He says, I'm bearing witness so that you also may believe. He says, I'm bearing witness. In other words, the words that I'm speaking to you, the story that I'm telling to you, when you listen to my words, when you enter into that story, you can have the same experience too. In other words, that means that the more you enter into the story, the more that shapes you, the more that defines you. One of the most powerful ways that you can look on Jesus for new definition is what we're doing here, worship. But that doesn't mean just being a passive observer. It means singing the songs, praying the prayers, um, engaging your mind with the words, coming to the Lord's table and engaging there. It's not a passive experience. It's an immersive experience. Worship is designed to shape your heart, to bring that new defining word into your life and make it a defining, controlling reality in your life. That's why um, this Good Friday service, this Tenebrae service, is such a powerful experience. If you come this Friday, you'll see what I mean. One of, one of the other very powerful ways that we can look on Jesus for a new definition is just by um, spending time personally with him in his word. John says, I'm bearing witness. The words I speak are that you also may believe, that you also may have this experience. You know, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. Do you believe that when you sit down and open up the Bible that you're encountering the living God, that you can have an experience of God when you open up the Bible? Do we really come to the Bible with that kind of expectation? I want to encourage you, and I wouldn't encourage you to do this if it hadn't changed my life, to spend time with God doing that, to sequester time in your life, in your day, every day to do this, to, to guard that time, to mark that time off, and to guard it fiercely because it really will change you. And look, I recognize it's really hard to do in our culture, especially in view of the reality that we're already looking on all kinds of other things. I mean, especially these little screens that fill our life every day. I mean, we're looking on all kinds of other things. And, and yes, I think it's, very healthy and good, and I think there's a lot of conversation in our culture right now about ways that we can disengage ourselves from technology. I think that's a healthy conversation. But if this technology is going to be in our lives, then what are some ways we can use the technology to actually help us get God's word more deeply into our lives? There are a lot of wonderful apps out there that can help you to do it. One of the best, I think, is uh, bibleproject.org. Bibleproject.org. They have a lot of really wonderful reading plans designed to help you get um, God's Word into your heart, into your life. But even more than that, they've created these wonderful illustrated videos for each book of the Bible so that before you open up the book and read it, you can watch this video, and, and it does a wonderful job of explaining the book, of outlining the book in a very physical way. You're watching this happen so that when you do open up the book and read it, you're not just going in blind. You've got some framework for understanding what it is you're about to read. It's incredibly helpful. But friends, whether in worship, whether in personal time with God's word, or many other ways we don't have time to talk about this morning, you have to look on Jesus for a new definition. And by the way, that means that we have to stop looking on ourselves Many people would say, look, all this stuff about the blood of Jesus, 
about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that's so primitive, it's so narrow. The essence of being a Christian is obeying the ethical and moral teachings of a Jesus. See, we're, we're beyond the blood now in our culture. The essence of being a Christian means following the teachings of Jesus. Listen, please understand me here. Jesus does call his followers to live a certain way and to do certain things. There is no doubt about that, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But think about it. If it's true that the essence of being a Christian is following a certain moral code, or more increasingly in our culture, um, adhering to a particular political agenda, whether conservative or progressive, if that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, then don't you see? We're looking on ourselves. We're not looking on Jesus. The focus is now back on what we're doing in order to get that defining word and not on what Jesus did to bring that defining word into our life. Look on Jesus for a new definition. But secondly, look on Jesus for a new motivation. I just mentioned that Jesus does call his followers to live a certain way, to do certain things, to have certain behaviors, certain values, certain actions that must be characteristic of our lives. The question is not whether we live a certain way. The question is why we live the way we live. Because the gospel gets to the roots of our motivations. The question is why we live the way we live. Traditional religion says, I obey, therefore God loves me and accepts me. The gospel says, God already loves me and accepts me because of the blood of Jesus, therefore I obey. It is a completely different motivation. It's the exact opposite motivation. The, the motivation of every religion says you live a good life in order to get God's love into your life. The gospel says, no, no, no. You live the life you live because you've already received God's love into your life. It's a completely different motivation. But that's the gospel because that's grace. And the more you know you need it, the more it changes you. So that, listen, if, you know, if you're somebody here this morning who might say, listen, you know, I think of myself as a pretty good person. You know, of course I'm not perfect, but listen, I'm not an axe murderer. If that's you, then the cross can never really change your life very much because you don't need it very much. The more you see that you need grace, the more it actually changes you when you receive it. And the more it changes you, the more it defines you, the more it transforms your life, every aspect of your life, so including the things we do, the way we live in this world. Because remember what we were saying earlier this morning, that God's vision for this world is to renew this world. God cares about this world, this physical world, so that as his followers, if we are not caring for the poor, if we are not standing up for the oppressed and the helpless, if we're not doing all the things that Jesus told us to do, then it really is right for us to ask, have we really been defined by the blood of Jesus? The more you see Jesus on the cross dying for you, the more that transforms you, the more you see that it cost Jesus his lifeblood to save you. The more you see, the more you look on what it cost him to save you, what it cost him to love you, what it cost him to give life to you, what it cost him to give the blood and the water for you, the more that defines you, the more that changes you, the more that transforms your life so that every aspect of your life becomes transformed, including the way we live in this world. Because here's the deal. Grace, 
does not remove the need for obedience in our lives. You know, it's, we can say, and it's true, yes, we're saved by grace. We don't do anything in order to be saved. But grace does not remove the need for obedience. It transforms the role of obedience. It gives you a new motivation for living in this world so that instead of saying, well, I'm going to live a good life in order to get God's love, we say, no, the gospel means that I live a good life because I've already received God's love into my life. Jesus gave his lifeblood for you. The more you see, the more you look on him giving that blood for you, what it cost him to love you, what it cost him to save you, the more you look on the blood and the water, the more it defines you, the more it changes you, the more it transforms you into an obedient servant of God and his vision for this world. Friends, look on Jesus for a new definition. Look on Jesus for a new motivation. The more you look on him, the more it transforms you, and the more it transforms you, the more it changes the world. Let's pray.